You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. So I'm going to talk about a koan this morning. It's a case 19 from the Gateless Gate or the Mumonkan. Ordinary mind is the way. Joshu earnestly asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen answered, the ordinary mind is the way. Joshu asked, should I direct myself toward it or not? Nansen said, if you try to turn toward it, you go against it. Joshu asked, if I do not try to turn toward it, how can I know that it is the way? Nansen answered, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is a blank consciousness. When you have really reached the true way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as the great empty firmament. How can it be talked about on the level of right and wrong? At these words, Joshu was suddenly enlightened. And then Mumon's verse. The spring flowers, the moon in autumn, the cool breezes of summer, the winter's snow. If idle concerns do not cloud the mind, this is man's happiest season. So um, the two uh, characters here in this koan are quite famous Zen masters, Master Nansen and Master Joshu. And we have many cases of both of them in many of our koan collections. And uh, uh, Nansen was a successor of Matsu. And um, the the famous koan that you probably heard of with Nansen is about the the monks were arguing in the monastery. The two sides, there were two like wings of the monastery, and they were arguing about. I think they were arguing about a cat. Uh, it doesn't matter. They were arguing anyway. And, and Nansen grabbed a cat, held it up, and said, "If you can say anything, I'll spare the cat." And they couldn't say anything. And it's said that he cut the cat in two. When I was uh, studying at the Zen Center Los Angeles, I ordained in my early 20s. I was very immature in so many ways. And uh, my, my father had uh, died the year before from a lymphoma. But my mother was still alive, and my mother was, um, well, she was schizophrenic, but she was also a deeply religious person. So she wasn't totally dead set that I was becoming a Buddhist priest, but she was a little concerned. And she, she read something about Zen somewhere about this nonsense cutting a cat in two. And I remember she went, to, we were talking to my Zumi Roshi before my ordination, and she says, uh, 
I'm a little concerned about this uh, Zen. Is, is my son going to go around the neighborhood killing cats? <laughs> and I don't remember exactly what Maizumi Roshi said, but he charmed her. You know, maybe he said something like, since your son's been at the Zen Center, we haven't, no cats have disappeared yet, and we've still got the same number of dogs here, too, so. But, um, you know, this, these Collins are some, sometimes like the stuff of folk stories and folk uh, fairy tales, and, you know, there's a lot of violence in Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, kids actually love this kind of stuff. <laughs> Adults, we get a little upset when we hear about it. We don't know if he actually cut the cat in two, but, you know, we're arguing as a country now about all kinds of stuff, aren't we? We are so divided. Aren't we cutting the cat in two on so many levels? Aren't there consequences when we argue and are divided? And then Joshu is also a very famous Zen master. He was uh, studied with Nansen most of his life. And at the point where this Cohen story takes place, he had already been practicing, uh, Joshu had been practicing about 20 years. And he practiced another 20 years with Nansen, and then Nansen passed. So Joshu would have been about 60. And then uh, Joshu, uh, he had already received transmission from Nansen. He went on pilgrimage after his teacher died for another 20 years. And he declared when he went on pilgrimage, if I meet a five-year-old that can teach me the Dharma, I'll study with him. If I meet a, a hundred-year-old man that needs teaching, I'll teach him. And in filial China, that's a pretty radical thing to say. So we uh, refer to Joshu as lips and tongues, Joshu, because he was so skillful with his words. So um, we have some nice stories about Joshu. One day, uh, uh, Joshu was sweeping the floor, and a man came by and observed, you are a good Zen master. How is it that dust accumulates at all? And Joshu said, it comes from the outside. The man said, this is a good, pure, and clean monastery. How could there be specks of dust in it? And Joshu said, here comes another one. <laughs> hey, you're going to, by the way, ring that bell every 10 minutes. Nice and, no, no, the ink and without the big bell, the Incan bell. We're, we're practicing a Thich Nhat Hanh mindfulness bell, right? So don't be afraid to interrupt me. And then there's one other story I like of Joshu. A monk asked him, what is the treasure in the bag? And Joshu said, keep your mouth closed. <laughs> oh. 
So can you imagine, Joshu's been practicing for 20 years and he asks his teacher, what is the way? That's such a wonderful question. What is the way? And you know, this, this word way in Chinese is Tao. We translate it into English as way. So we often speak of the Buddha way and that sounds like it's something real meaningful in terms of Buddha, you know, it's something Buddhist, but actually we now translate it as the Buddha Tao. And we know that Taoism had a huge influence on Chan, on, on the development of Zen in China. And nonsense answers, Joshu, he says, ordinary mind is the way. What is this ordinary mind? Close your eyes. What do you see? That's ordinary mind. Open your eyes. What do you see? Shapes, colors, people, light, shadow, that's ordinary mind. You hear my voice? Can you hear my voice? That's ordinary mind. Hold up your thumb. That's ordinary mind. Hold your thumb down. That's ordinary mind. What are your hands feeling right now? Your arms, your thighs, your hands. That's ordinary mind. You add anything to it, it's no longer ordinary mind is something else. And we almost always add something extra. That's what we do. And once you try to say what it is, it's no longer ordinary mind. Your mind which thinks, which plans, which worries, which controls, that's not ordinary mind. You know, the character for mind, by the way, in Chinese, Xin, it's in my Dharma name, Zhou Xin, uh, means mind heart. And we talk so much about mind here it's easy to think the Buddhism has something to do with you know, clarity, which it does, but it also has a lot to do with the heart. As Sensei demonstrated so well yesterday in her Dharma talk, this is a way of the heart. So if you have tears, if you have grief, this is ordinary mind too. If you are struggling in a relationship, this is ordinary mind. So in the prologue to the Gateless Gate, Wu Mon says, Buddhism calls mind its ancestral nature, its household, and no gate its Dharma gate. 
If it's an absent gate, no gate at all, how could anyone pass through it? We've all heard that whatever enters through the courtyard gate can't be the household treasure, and whatever arises from the origin tissue must be limited to beginning and end, fruition and ruin. But what kind of talk? It's like waves churned up without any wind, like wounds cut, cut deep into healthy flesh. In the search for understanding, what's worse than using a tangle of words? You're just swinging a stick as if you could hit the moon, scratching a boot as if you could itch a foot. How could that ever work? So now Joshu asks a really good question of his teacher. Nansen has just said, the way is ordinary mind. And Joshu says, should I direct myself toward it or not? What a wonderful question. What do you think? We have teachings about directing ourselves to the way, don't we? We teach meditation. We teach you. They're prescriptive. Sit down. Sit upright. Pay attention to your body, your breath. Count your breath. When you get to 10, if you get to 10, start over. And if you don't get to 10, then start over anyway. And when you forget the count, you come back to the count. That's prescriptive. And that takes effort, doesn't it? Okay, you have to want to do this, but you didn't come to the session and just hap, oh, this, this is a session happening tomorrow. I'm going to, you didn't just do this haphazardly. You, you thought about it and you planned so that you could do it. So don't we direct ourselves towards the way? Don't we need to have an intention and a motivation to do this practice? There are so many other things you could be doing, but here, you're here. Why? Why are you here? So, nonsense answers, Joshu. Namsen says, if you try to turn toward it, um, um, Namsen says, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Joshua asks, should I direct myself toward it or not? And Namsen says, if you try to turn toward it, you go against it. Aren't we trying to turn towards mindfulness? Towards being in the present? We're always talking about being present. Could you be anywhere else? Try, don't be present right now. Don't be here now. Be somewhere else. If you turn towards it, you go against it. And 
And now uh, Joshua asks another great question. This is just an amazing and very clarifying koan, I think. If you really sit with this koan, I think you will find it's very helpful. Joshua says, if I, don't, if, I'm, if I do not try to turn toward it, how can I know that it is the way? Yeah. And nonsense, crystal clear, says, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. In the future, hit the ink and bell. That's okay. Do you have to know anything to hear my voice? Do you have to know anything to hear a bird singing or the cars on the street outside? Once you name it as a car, now you know it's a car. But before you named it, was there any knowing involved in hearing that sound? And then Nantan goes on, he says, knowing is delusion. Not knowing is a blank consciousness. Knowing is delusion? What kind of a spiritual practice is this? Ordinary mind. What gets in the way is our knowing, our thinking. We get in the way. And it's always here. Ordinary mind has always been here. To know something, there has to be somebody who knows it and already there's a separation. There's me and there's what I know. If there's no knowing, then there's no me that knows and there's no me that gets in the way. And that's really the point of all this practice is what gets in the way, what obscures ordinary mind. That's the point. To really see how we get in the way, how we add something extra, always add something extra. Our ambition, our conceit, our arrogance, our greed, anger, ignorance, all of that. Our project that we're working on, whatever that is, gets in the way.
So it's our ego, our self, is what gets in the way. And then we could say there's three kinds of not knowing. There's the silence in the Doksan room, which is the roar of a lion. And then there's the silence that the student kind of throws out there, hoping <laughs> that it might be the right answer. <laughs> and then there's the silence of, you just have not a clue. You're just completely bewildered, and you don't know where you are. You don't know whether you're up or down. Three kinds of not knowing. Not knowing doesn't mean there isn't discernment. And then Nansen finishes this conversation saying, when you really reach the two, true way beyond all doubt, because this ordinary mind is beyond doubt. Do you have any doubt that you're hearing my voice at the moment? Any doubt whatsoever? Ordinary mind. Doubt gets in the way of appreciating ordinary mind. Our doubt gets in the way. I'm not good enough. I'm not adequate enough. I haven't practiced enough meditation. Our culture teaches us loathing, loneliness, disappointment, how to be a good consumer. When you have really reached the way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as the empty firmament. How can it be talked about on the level of right and wrong? I watch TV, we, we uh, subscribe now to YouTube TV and I watch tennis a lot. I love tennis. And I see this ad quite a lot now from American Express and it says, do you wanna go back to reality or do you wanna go back to the pool? I, every time I hear that, I just, it just floors me. I just take a double take. Where am I? <laughs> but I know what they're talking about. I know they got me hooked. Because we go to Mexico, and we go to these hotels, and they have bars in the pool. You can sit on a, on a, on a bench in the pool, 
and get the margarita in the pool. I spent a lot of time in those pools, so I know exactly what they mean. But did I ever think I was leaving reality to go to the pool? Did I ever think when I drink a margarita, I'm leaving reality? What is that saying? What's that message? Reality is the pits. Go buy something and go shopping. Like Bush said on 9-11, let's bring the economy back, let go shopping. If you're sad and grieving, go shopping. Ordinary mind is reality as it is. Why would we want anything else? Or how could anything be improved on that? And yet, that's what we do, isn't it? Don't we want to improve on reality? Don't we think that we can improve on this? Isn't that our conceit, really? This is what my, one of my teachers, Trungpa Rinpoche, called a setting sun vision. The setting sun vision has, does not have any interest in reality, wants to create its own reality, life on its own terms, is terrified of death, terrified of grief and sadness, terrified of suffering and creates nothing but suffering. We've been taught that reality is dissatisfying. We've been taught self-loathing. We've been taught loneliness. We've been taught separation. So this world of setting the setting sun vision that consensual reality teaches us, tells us this is what is real, the material world. We're nothing but material forms separated from each other. In Buddhism, we call this samsara. And the word for suffering in Buddhism is dukkha, which actually means an axle that's off-center on the wheel. Can you get the picture? 
So it's always, samsara is really a bumpy ride. It's a roller coaster. So how could we improve on ordinary mind? And why would we want something more than ordinary mind? And as Nansen is saying in this koan so clearly, I think you can all get it, is that we get in the way. If you go looking for it, you miss it because it's already here. How could you possibly go looking for what's already here? Look, it's already here. It's already yours. Your true self is already yours. Wisdom is yours for the taking. Liberation, you can have that too. Right now, right here, right now. What are you waiting for? What's missing? What's lacking? Nonsense not holding anything back. He's telling us just exactly how it is. But you won't get it by just reading a book or social media. You have to make the conditions a little bit right, and then it's already in your pocket. But you do need to practice. You need, do need to engage with this ordinary mind in order to appreciate it and see it and value it. Otherwise, nothing happens. And then you just keep chasing. You keep chasing something else. Always chasing after something else. So sad. So, um, the last piece I want, what time is it? Huh? 10.58. Oh, okay. 10.58? What did I, time did I start? Okay. So, um, as I said before, uh, there's a lot of Taoism in Zen and often doesn't get appreciated. And I think it helps. It can enrich our practice to really see the, so much of this uh, Taoism is in Zen. And Taoism, you know, was the indigenous religion of China. And it was in China long before uh, Buddhism was imported from India into China. It was the indigenous religion of China, and it was a feminine religion. So, Taoism, they talk about yin and yang. Yin being 
female, yang being male, but here yin and yang, we all have both, whether we're male or female, right? And the Tao is very clear about this. It said, stay on the yin side of things if you can. And when you need to do something that requires that kind of yang energy, go do it. But when you're done doing it, go back to the yin side, because the yin side is receptive. The yin side can always see the other side of yang. But when you're on the yang side, you tend to get carried away. Yang gets carried away with itself, gets a little inflated, and doesn't actually see the yin side at all. So there's a question of balance. If you want to be in balance, when you're done with the yang stuff, go back to the yin. Does that make sense? And they say it over and over again in the Tao Te Ching. Here's an example from the Tao Te Ching. No glory, keep to the humble. Here under heaven, heaven, be a valley. Being a valley here under heaven, common virtue is sufficient. Return to the plain and simple. Aren't they talking about ordinary mind? The valley. Yeah, we like to climb mountains, and maybe if you have a lot of money, you can build a house on the top of a mountain, but what an arrogant thing to do. How arrogant is that? The valley is where we live. That's where the schools are. That's where the farms are. That's where people grow food. Valley is where we live. That's where the domestic, domestic, domestic life is. We live in the valleys. We don't live on the top of mountains. A valley is a low place where the water gathers. Nowadays, it might be a place where the water floods also. Be plain and simple. Over and over again, the Tao Te Ching talks about being simple. Being ordinary. Be satisfied with what you have here. It's already here. Don't go looking for it somewhere else. A few days ago, or last weekend, we celebrated the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And not to take anything away from the, the suffering that that event caused, the loss of life, the courage of first responders and many others, and the suffering of families that lost loved ones on that day. Not to take anything away from that or the patriotism that I felt on that day that I felt last weekend watching uh, celebrations and the American flag. Not to take anything away from that. But what did we do after 9-11? 
Did we learn anything from Vietnam? What did we do? It was, Tine Levin was a horrific, horrific tragedy. And I was in Paris at the time doing, finishing a workshop with Bernie, and we were at a Zen Center. June was on a plane over the Atlantic. And, you know, uh, General and me went to a bar to watch, the, watch it on television because Zen Center didn't have a television. And, you know, the French people were very sympathetic to us as Americans, and they're not always so sympathetic to Americans. But then I felt their, 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 their sympathy. And we were helpless, weren't we? We felt helpless. We felt vulnerable. Finally, war had come to our own shores. And what did we do? What did we do with our grief? Huh? We went shopping. We went shopping. We also took all the power of our technology, all the power, all our anger, all our wrath, and wreaked vengeance on people in the Middle East. And now, 20 years later, we're starting to look like the enemy we went over there to defeat. Men come home from war where they went to conquer evil. They come home broken to be taken care of by women. It breaks down because now service people can be both men and women. But it's still, I think, the feminine that's the first thing that gets attacked when we go to war. We go to war with the feminine. We pass laws that allow people to actually hunt women if they get an abortion. What is that? What kind of violence is that? So, ordinary mind, ordinary mind, cooking, changing diapers, yeah, the shoe sole should clean the toilet. He's already changing diapers. Cooking. Cleaning. I want to finish with a poem that was written by... Um, 
Joy Harjo, and it was written just a little bit over a month after 9-11 happened. And it's ironic. She could be talking about 9-11, but I think she's talking about what we did to indigenous people in our country hundreds of years ago. I think now most of us, if we have our eyes open, are shocked with the dystopian nature of our world. It's shocking. We're shocked with what's happening to the planet and uh, it's unraveling before our eyes right here, right now. Indigenous people experienced that dystopia hundreds of years ago. This is nothing new to them. Weren't we terrorists to indigenous people? Didn't we steal their land, break our treaties with them, ruin their way of life, force their children into missionary schools? decimate their populations? Some historians would say that was a Holocaust. So here's a poem that uh, Joy Harjo wrote uh, on October 20th, 2001, called When the World as We Knew It Ended. It was coming. We had been watching since the eve of the missionaries in their long and solemn clothes to see what would happen. We saw it from the kitchen window over the sink as we made coffee, cooked rice and potatoes, enough for an army. We saw it all as we changed diapers and fed the babies. We saw it through the branches of knowledgeable trees, through the snags of stars, through the sun and storms from our knees as we bathed and washed the floors. The conference of birds warned us as they flew over destroyers in the harbor, parked there since the first takeover. It was by their song and talk we knew when to rise when to look out the window to the commotion going on, the magnetic field thrown off by grief, we heard it. The racket in every corner of the world as the hunger for war rose up in those who would steal to be president, to be king or emperor, to own the trees, stones, and everything else that moved about the earth, inside the earth, and above it. We knew it was coming, tasted the winds who gathered intelligence from each leaf and flower, from every mountain, sea, and desert, from every prayer and song all over this tiny universe, floating in the skies of infinite being. And then it was over. This world we had grown to love. Oh. 
for its sweet grasses. For the many colored horses and fishes, for the shimmering possibilities while dreaming. But then there were the seeds to plant and the babies who needed milk and comforting. And someone picked up a guitar or ukulele from the rubble and began to sing about the light flutter that kicked beneath the skin of the earth we felt there. Beneath us, the warm animal, a song being born between the legs of her, a poem. Grief. It's also here with ordinary mind. It is ordinary mind. There is our private grief, and then there's our collective grief. You remember the pictures of the oil leaking into the Gulf of Mexico? That is grief. The coral being bleached, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia dying, that is grief and we all carry it, every one of us. Suffering can bond us to a greater trust or to a greater divide. We are now witnessing the unraveling of our planet. The death of ecosystems that support life, of watersheds, support whole ways of life and fisheries and salmon, and it goes on and on. And we have a choice. I think one possibility is just to become numb, to feel paralyzed. And the other possibility in the urgency of the moment is a kind of panic, a social hysteria, which we see in spades right now. In a pandemic, people behaving poorly, people people have always behaved poorly in pandemics we become selfish because we're afraid, we're fearful. There's too much disruption and we're overwhelmed. Again, 
we feel helpless. And if we have learned anything from 9-11, couldn't we learn to grieve? Couldn't we be transformed by grief into a, almost an unbearable love for life on its own terms, not ours? And then couldn't we start the work of rebuilding something here that was sustainable? Don't we have to do that? So don't let the urgency of the moment deprive you of your capacity to let life through, to love life, to love each other. I got one other poem, then I'll, I'll stop. This is a poem, I love Rilke. You never go wrong with Rilke, so, you know, you've probably heard this before. So moving. Quiet friend who has come so far, Feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower, and you the bell as you ring. What batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What is it like, such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. Say to the rushing river, speak, I am. We have time for discussion, questions, comments, stories, poems, dreams. Anybody have anything to say? Did I make you all sad? <laughs> Sadness can, can bring joy if we're open. If we open to our tears, we find ordinary mind right here where we are, and we find here joy too and love and life. Yeah. David. Oh, we need to give you a microphone. <laughs> 
Sí, yeah. Uh, sorry, I was still thinking of that poor cat. I'm still serious and thinking about that poor cat. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, the poor cat. Yeah. You know, if someone had spoken up, it would have saved the cat. But they were, they were in a Zen monastery, and after all, it was Nansen, who was a great Zen master, so they were probably intimidated. And they thought, well, this is, I got to say something clever to Nansen. So they didn't say anything. Or they were so caught up and in, in, invested in their argument and their point of view, they couldn't say anything. And Nazen killed the cat. We killed the cat. As companion to a new new kitten. Take your uh, mask off so I can hear you, Jigen. As, as uh, companion to a new kitten, that that uh, kitten, that cat, is really piercing my heart. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about uh, the part of the koan, uh, knowing is a delusion and not knowing is blank consciousness. Mm -hmm. So where, where, where should we land um, in that? Where are you right now? Uh, where where have you landed? Right in the middle, <laughs> more, <laughs> more towards not knowing, I guess. <laughs> Can you feel yourself sitting on the chair? Yes. Can you feel your feet on the floor? Yes. And you've landed. <laughs> um, so far during the retreat, I've I've had a realization that um, hearing you speaking, that ordinary mind is doing something for the first time over and over and over again and it and it's and, it, and as, as i was you know sweeping the leaves out there like i had um memories of doing that as a kid mm -hmm. but when i used to do it as a kid it wasn't i thought it was work and it was boring just didn't like doing it at all uh -huh. so being here with everyone and being able to do it for the first time again and then doing it for the first time again just feels very ordinary it feels very what very ordinary yeah to just repeat the same thing over and over again and for the first time yeah that's a nice way to put it yeah In speaking to the Cohen, 
you had said that not knowing is not without discernment. Can you speak a little more, elaborate on that? Not knowing involves discernment because it's clear seeing. It's not, you're not imposing yourself on the knowing. You don't need to uh, understand anything to hear my voice. And you don't actually need to understand or know anything to discern something being wholesome or unwholesome because you already can see that. Uh, it's a question of trusting life. It's a question of trusting the larger who you are, which is so much larger than who you think you are. So when you really let go into this kind of, into not knowing, you actually find that you're here in a way that's on the spot, and then you can see what is clear, what is confused, what is wholesome, what is not. You can discern that. You do not have to actually think about that to see it. And that's the kind of discernment that, that's what we mean by prajna wisdom. When you don't have self-referential self uh, uh, ego, being you're constantly dredging that up, then when you let go of that, then instead of the self-referential uh, uh, thinking that you always conceptual thinking, you have a non-referential intelligence, which is what we call prajna wisdom. And it's always here. And it always is, arises with emptiness. They go together. And you see the reality clearly, then there's wisdom that comes at the same time. And the wisdom is what can discern. Is that helpful? Yeah, thank yeah. you. Anybody online want to say something? <laughs> Patrick? Hi. Hey, Roshi. Hi, everybody. Um, dur during the talk, there was uh, one of the uh, uh, during one of the mindfulness spells, and there was quiet. Uh, I live in a corner where there's a, a lot of children walking by, and I live close to the train, but I heard in one of the quiet times a child yell and a train going by, and it was like I'd never heard it before. It, it was uh, extremely powerful, just being in the, uh, in the quiet. I was able to appreciate it in a way that I, I never had been able to before. Yeah. Yeah, the train doesn't need your naming of it to be a train. So that's what we're saying. This um, ordinary mind is seeing uh, and sees things, hears things, uh, perceives things directly without any uh, intervening uh, interpretation of what is taking place. Yeah. <laughs> we have so many opportunities to to appreciate ordinary mind. Oh my gosh, Jackie. Um, when you said, "There's no doubt that I hear your voice," mm -hmm. it it came to my heart that I hear my nana 
uh, all the time. You know, I, uh-huh. I still use her, um, her pot, you know, to make meals. And, you know, I hear her telling me, you know, just a sprinkle, um, you know, stir that again. I, he- I hear it. I, I hear it inside me. And um, yeah, it's, it's like that. There's no doubt that I hear her. Yeah, no doubt. Well, on that note, I think it's time for lunch. So thank you.